Well, this past week, Autumn and I had the chance to go to Florida, just the two of us, for a week. Have I told you lately how great it is to actually be an empty nester? And so when we got back, we were there for uh, six days. Um, when we were there, um, when we got back, I had all of, of these things um, waiting for us in our mail. You know that great big pile of mail that you get when you come home? Uh, this is my great big pile. This is what was waiting for me when I got back from six days in Florida, right? They multiply uh, like rabbits. We actually went to a restaurant called 400 Rabbits. I had no idea I was going to have 400 catalogs waiting for me when I got, I got home. And see, the interesting thing is I was perfectly content with everything in my life, right? I just just got back um, from a week in Florida with my wife until I actually started looking um, through all of, of these things because that's when I discovered um, that listen I, I don't you know I don't have the right pair of glasses right I, I don't have um, I, I don't have like the, the coolest camping equipment um, like I don't have you know I don't bake the right kind of bread um, I don't even like bread my, my my barn doesn't have you know comfortable couches or, or stylish pottery in it I don't even have a barn maybe I should get a barn um, I don't wear the right clothes, like I am so not cool when it comes to clothing. Like I just felt like the biggest loser after reading through all of these things. Like can any of you relate at all? Do you ever feel like you would be a little bit happier if you just had a little bit more? Right, a little bit more money in your wallet. A little more savings perhaps in your retirement fund or your, um, your savings account. A little more square footage in your house, right? A little bit more stuff in your closets or in your home. See, the truth is we're constantly bombarded. We are constantly dissatisfied with what we have because we are constantly reminded of what there is. And even though probably all of us, you know, right, probably all of us actually live um, with the realization that what, yes, we do, in fact, um, you know, have, have food to eat and we have clothes to wear um, and, and we've got transportation and we've got music to stream and we've got the flattest, you know, flatter than ever TV and the smarter than ever phone. Um, the, the truth is probably for most of us, um, we're just, if we're honest, we're just constantly dissatisfied right? because we live in a culture and we live in a world that is constantly, constantly reminding us of what there is. And, and my problem, and I don't know if this is your problem, it might be your problem, it might be your problem, I don't know, but this is my problem. My problem is that just about every single day, um, I see a picture of just about everything that I don't have and that I didn't even know I needed until I saw it. Right? And, and the problem is that somehow somebody knows that, that I might also like, right? And that these items that I'm looking at are actually related to the items I've already purchased. And that customers who bought these things that I just bought, they also bought. And in fact, everything that I just bought is frequently bought together with all of these things, right? And somehow somebody knows this and they can actually just keep putting pictures of these things in front of me every single day. So how in the world is anyone supposed to remain content in our world, right, when somebody can just keep hanging this stuff out in front of you every single day of our lives, right? And my problem and, and our problem, if we're honest, right, if you think about it, the problem is not what we don't have, Right? Think about it. The problem is not what we don't have. The problem is, in fact, the awareness of what we could have. Right? And herein lies one of the most important principles that you will ever hear. And certainly this is not original with me, but I'm telling you this will save you from a world of hurt and pain in the future um, if you can kind of take this in and, and begin to apply it to your life. Our problem is that it's our awareness that actually drives our discontentment. 
Right? That's what the problem is. The reason I'm so discontent is because I actually know what's out there. The reason you're so discontent with what you drive and where you live and, I mean, how high your ceilings are and, like, the color of the hardware on your cabinet doors, for crying out loud. Right? The reason, and it just goes on and on and on. The reason we're so discontent is because we actually know what's out there. And see, the truth is, this actually explains why getting more never seems to deal with our discontentment. Right? This is why, this explains why getting uh, more stuff never makes us feel like we actually have enough stuff. Now, to be fair, right, there is nothing wrong with great advertising and there is nothing wrong with great marketing. Okay, so if you're in the advertising business, um, you're in the marketing business, listen, I'm all for everybody eating and living indoors. I hope you're super successful. I hope you make a pile of money. I, I really do. The problem is not you, right? The problem is me. Because while there is nothing wrong with good advertising and there's nothing wrong with great marketing, um, there is something unsettling about a bunch of credit card debt. Right? There is something um, that, that is anxiety-provoking about not having any financial margin in, in your life, no matter how much money you make, because peace is always found in the margin. And so if you don't have any margin, right, you, you don't have any peace. There is something that's very disturbing about having so much stuff that it fills up every room and every closet in your house, and so you have no savings in the bank. Right, there is something that's very, very frustrating about accumulating so much uh, stuff that even though you feel generous in your heart, you can't actually afford to be generous with your checkbook. Right? So there is nothing wrong with great marketing. There is nothing wrong with great advertising. But there is something wrong when the focus of my life is consumption because, and you know this, right? human desire, human desire is infinite. Now, at a theological level, every single one of us, we are all made um, by God. And every single one of us, we are actually made for God. And so the truth is nothing less than connection with the infinite God of the universe himself, nothing less than that is ever going to satisfy our hearts. And so when we move our desire, right, or another word for desire, another word for desire is love, right? If we move our love um, or our desire off of creator God and onto things, right, even if they're good things, right, no matter what it is, whether it's family or travel or romance or career or ambition or wealth or accumulation, no matter what it is, if we move our desire off of God and onto, onto things, the truth is none of those things, even as good as they are, none of them can actually bear up under the weight or the pressure of human desire because human desire is infinite. And so as a result, many of us, we actually live with this chronic sense of discontentment and di uh, dissatisfaction, um, or to put it in the words of a very famous British poet who once said, I can't get no satisfaction. Right? And this is especially true. You know this, right? This is especially true. We all know this, especially when it comes to the accumulation of money and wealth. Um, perhaps the best example of this is actually found in the words of John D. Rockefeller. Many of you know this name. You recognize this name. Um, this is familiar to you. Now, John D. Rockefeller, um, you may not know this, is still widely regarded to be the richest person of modern history, right? Still by today's standards because, I want you to think about this, his personal wealth was equal to 3% of the United States' GDP. 
Right now, think about that. In today's dollars, $700 billion, that's his personal wealth. Nothing to do with his companies, nothing to do with his businesses, his organization. That was his personal wealth. And so one day, John D. Rockefeller was very famously asked um, by a journalist um, the question, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money is enough money? And so after a brief pause, um, Mr. Rockefeller responded very famously by saying, well, just a little bit more. No matter how much we have, no matter how much we acquire, no matter how much success we achieve, the truth is all of us, we always want just a little bit more. So consequently, if our strategy to deal with our desire is just an attempt to go out and make a whole bunch of money so that we can buy whatever it is that we want, the truth is that is a strategy which is destined to fail. Research from Robert C. Roberts, um, which is fascinating, distinguished professor of ethics and philosophy um, at Baylor University, also Case Western University. Again, this is research. This is not his, um, not his opinion. He said this. He said, upward mobility, in other words, getting rich, right, moving up the ladder. Upward mobility often ends not in satisfaction or peace, but in exhaustion, disappointment, and emptiness, Right, again, not an opinion, right? Because again, you know this. So many times, we've experienced this so many times, right, for, for many of us, and we find ourselves as just about, as, as we are about to cross that finish line towards satisfaction, right, all of a sudden, this is what he's telling us, that goalpost, it moves. Now, the truth is, not all discontentment is bad, right? There is, in fact, some good discontentment. If you have a bad habit, Right, and you're sick of that habit um, running and ruining your life, then the truth is that's actually some good discontentment. If you decide, uh, listen, I'm sick of how much money I'm spending on this. I'm sick of what this is doing to my health. I'm sick about how this is impacting my other relationships. Um, and so you decide to stop doing something. The truth is that is good discontentment. And good discontentment has actually led to some powerful changes in our world, some amazing changes in our world, solutions for, for some of the world's biggest problems, things like poverty and hunger, uh, injustice, inequality. Right? It, all those things happen. Countless diseases have been cured in our world because a, a person or a group of people became so discontent with the status quo that they said, okay, I just can't let this be anymore. Right? Good discontentment is a holy rejection of what is and the recognition and the understanding that something needs to change. But see, interestingly enough, and this is the part I, I don't want you to miss on this, the people who actually change the world, right, the, the people um, who, who get um, this sense of holy rejection, who actually change the world, they decide to invest their lives, they decide to invest their talents, they decide um, to put their energy and their time into something that they personally will never benefit from in the future. Those people, they are not ruled by the same discontentment that rules most of us. They are somehow people who are free from the kind of discontentment that plagues you and me and most of our world. And herein lies the understanding that we need to actually um, tame this beast, this tame this idea of discontentment. Because um, the way that you tame discontentment, the secret of taming discontentment, is not to decide, okay, I'm just, I'm just not going to be discontent anymore. That never works. 
Right? It's not to simply decide, okay, from now on I'm just going to be content with what I have. That never works. The secret in taming the beast lies in replacing this with something else. And when you do, you will discover life. Now, throughout this series, we are talking about a series of habits or practices that quite literally have the power to change all of our lives. And when we talk about changing life, we're not talking about making our lives a little bit better. We are, in fact, talking about making our lives remarkably better. And the habit or the practice of simplicity is what tames um, discontentment in us and is what frees us from the slavery to the desire of more. Now, there's similar ideas to simplicity that are found all throughout our world, all throughout our culture, all throughout history. Again, you, you probably know this from um, ancient Greek philosophy um, to, uh, to Buddhism to the more um, recent movement of sparking joy through minimalism, right? But, but according to Jesus, right, according to Jesus, the practice of simplicity according to Jesus is unique because according to Jesus, the practice of simplicity, the thing that makes um, this practice different for the follower of Jesus, is that simplicity is all about freeing our souls from the modern mania of life in order to increase our peace and to increase our joy in living with Jesus in his kingdom. Because simplicity actually allows us to see material things for what they are, goods to enhance life and not oppress life. Now, if you want to dive deeper into understanding or learning how to practice simplicity according to Jesus, I highly recommend that you get a copy of this book right here, um, The Freedom of Simplicity by Richard J. Foster, because this book really is the definitive book when it comes to understanding simplicity uh, as a follower of Jesus. And in this book, you're going to be able to go into much more depth um, than I'm ever going to be able to go into in a single message. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 6, however, is the definitive scripture when it comes to actually understanding what it means to practice simplicity as a follower of Jesus and what it means to make simplicity a part of your life just as it was a part of Jesus' life. So if you want to follow along, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6 today. Um, we're going to begin in verse 6. Now, First and Second Timothy, you may know this, were two books that were written by the Apostle Paul. And he wrote them to, um, to, to teach the person that he left in charge of the church that he planted in Ephesus. So the letter of Ephesians, right? Uh, Timothy was the person the Apostle Paul left in charge of the church in Ephesus. And he wrote these two letters, First and Second Timothy, to teach Timothy and to teach us what it actually looks like and what it means to follow Jesus, right? Meaning to, to live like Jesus lived and then to do the things that Jesus actually did. So beginning in verse 6 of chapter 6, um, the Apostle Paul, he gives to us kind of in very rapid fire succession, um, six statements that are just so, they are so packed, they are so rich, uh, just about the, the reality and the nature of, of life in, in our world and the reality of money and, and life and stuff. And he begins by saying this, he says, okay, godliness with contentment is great gain. Right? And this word right here, godliness, um, this should not scare you off. Um, this, this word godliness, it just simply means um, godlikeness, right? Godliness, godlikeness, that's all this word means. The New Testament teaches, all the New Testament authors go on to explain 
that the way that you and I can actually be the most like God, the way that we can actually um, be the most godly, um, is the, the way that we can be most like God is to simply learn how to put other people ahead of ourselves. That God-likeness means becoming more loving. Why? Because God is love. Right? And if God is love, the more loving you are, the more you put other people first, the more you put other people ahead of you, the more you put yourself second to those around you, then the more like God you are. That's the gospel. Right? For God so loved the world, because God is love, that he gave. In other words, God-likeness or godliness for us as followers of Jesus, right, it's not this weird kind of mystic separateness, like stay away because you might be contaminated by something. No, um, Jesus says, listen, as my followers, I want you to do all the same things that I do. And Jesus says, listen, I always run towards the messes, not away from them. And so this is why we always find Jesus actually going and touching the untouchable people. And Jesus doesn't get sick. Instead, the people actually get healed. Everything got reversed with Jesus. So godliness is not about staying away from someone or something. Godliness is learning to be more like God. It's learning to love like God. It's learning about how to engage people in a way that's actually going to help and benefit those people. The Apostle Paul says, listen, if you want a lot of gain, if you want great gain, here's how how you get it. You learn to be more like God. You learn how to put other people first. For, right, he continues, and, and this is so big, and yet we miss this completely. For, we brought nothing into this world. This is the Apostle Paul's way of saying this. Listen, think about it. You were most lovable when you owned nothing. You were, in fact, most cherished when you could not do a single thing for another person. Right, that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He's building a, a subtle case. Right? He, he's explaining to us, listen, um, this is his subtle way of saying, you are way more valuable, way more um, important than simply what you have. And so to grow up as an adult thinking that somehow your value or your worth is tied to the things that you have, that is such a mistake because you brought nothing into this world. Right? And, he gives us the corollary, right? and we can take nothing out of it. Right? You're not leaving here with anything. In fact, you're going to leave everything. Which brings us to a very disturbing question, right? Here's the question. Other than stuff, what are you going to leave behind? Right? You're, you're going to leave behind your stuff. You're more valuable than stuff because you came into this world without any and you're leaving without any. And somewhere in the middle, all of us, we all get caught up with stuff. So uh, what in the world other than stuff are you actually going to leave behind? See, the truth is this is a question for all of us, but this is a question especially for those of us who are followers of Jesus and who want to live the way that Jesus lived and do the things that Jesus did. This is a question that should be front and center in our minds and in our hearts all the time. And if we allow this to actually be front and center, I'll make you this promise. This question has the power, if you act on this question, it has the power to curb discontentment, this kind of discontentment, and actually put you on the path to simplicity. In fact, this question can actually have the power to lead you to becoming one of those extraordinary men or those extraordinary women who, who devote their lives to changing something about our world because of how much hurt or suffering is being caused in our world. 
See, the Apostle Paul is reminding us, he's saying, listen, remember, the only thing, right, the only thing that we carry with us into the age to come is our relational soul. What does that mean? It means the relationships we have invested in in this life and the person that we have become. This is the only thing, this is what the Apostle Paul is telling us, this is the only thing that we actually carry with us into the future. And so to use the Apostle Paul's terminology, right, when you're gone, will there be any great gain? Will the world have gained anything because you were here? Will our community have gained anything because you were here? Or will we simply leave a bunch of stuff? That's the question the Apostle Paul is trying to get us to wrestle to the ground. And I'm telling you, wrestling this question to the ground and then acting in response to this question, this is what is at the heart of the practice of simplicity. And then the Apostle Paul, he, he turns the attention onto himself and he says, okay, so, so let me tell you how I, what I'm doing about these things I just told you about. Let me tell you how I'm putting these things into practice in my life. You don't have to do what I do, he's about to say. I just want you to know I'm practicing what I'm preaching. I'm not a hypocrite. Right? That, that's what he's saying. You, you don't have to do this my way. I just want you to know how this is working out for me. And he says this, but if we, right, but if we, and, and we here is his traveling companion. So this is um, Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke, right, the Apostle Paul himself. This is um, Barnabas. This is John Mark, the person who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Right? Those are the Apostle Paul's traveling companions at this point. He's saying, but if we, if we have food to eat and clothing to wear, then we will be content with that. Now, again, he's not saying that you have to do that. Right? The, the Apostle Paul, none of these, none of these men had families. Right? They, they, none of them were married. They didn't have any kids. Right? They didn't have any of those responsibilities. So he's not saying um, that you have to take this to, to the extreme that, that he did. He's just simply saying, I'm practicing what I preached. I want you to know uh, I'm not a hypocrite. I, I know what I'm talking about. Right? Godliness, putting other people first, along with contentment, being satisfied with what I have. Uh, that is great gain. I can tell you that authoritatively, Paul's saying, because I'm living this out. Right, which would lead us, should lead us to another question. Right? What did the Apostle Paul actually leave behind? Right? Because godliness with great gain leads to contentment. Like that's, that's way up here. Right? That's so ethereal. It's just so out there somewhere. So the Apostle Paul knows that. He's inviting us to ask him the question, to make it practical. Okay, Paul, you took this to the extreme. You practiced what you preached. You found contentment in nothing more than the food that you have to eat and clothing on your back. So, Paul, what, what, what did you um, what, what, how did that work out for you, Paul? Right? What, what did the Apostle Paul leave behind? We don't stop to think about this. Right? But see, answering this question, right? answering this question, uh, I'm telling you, this can lead to, to a completely different understanding of life for you. Right? Because what did the Apostle Paul leave behind? He left behind a series of letters that shaped Western culture for 2,000 years. Right? What else did the Apostle Paul leave behind? 
He left behind theology. You say to yourself, well, who, who cares about theology? Listen, the primary reason slavery is illegal in 101 of the 195 countries in our world today is because of the theology of the Apostle Paul and what he taught based on Jesus' final command to love one another the way that I, Jesus, have loved you. The reason why we believe that every single man, woman, and child in this world has equal and intrinsic and not ascribed value is directly tied to the theology of the Apostle Paul based on the teaching of Jesus and these words. Right? Again, a belief that is not embraced universally in our world, but a belief that is embraced in every nation and every group of people that traces its culture back to Jesus, to the teachings of Jesus, and to the theology of the Apostle Paul. So the Apostle Paul says, listen, you want great gain? you got to learn to take your focus off all this stuff. Not because it's bad. Right? Don't miss that. That's not what he's saying. Not because it's bad, it's not morally wrong, it's not sinful, it's not any of those things. He's just saying, listen, the problem with stuff is that you get to the end of your life and then your life is all about just stuff. And I actually know you want more than that. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. I mean, think about it. I mean, don't you want to leave something behind that isn't just a thing? I mean, if something were to happen to you today, if something were to happen to me today, I mean, really, what have we left behind? What actually needs to capture our attention? Where should we be directing the energy that we have as it relates to discontentment? See, then he goes on and he says this, and he says, this is amazing. He says, those who want to get rich, they fall into temptation and a trap. Now, it's really easy for us to just rush by this and say, okay, um, this is talking about somebody else. But see, don't miss this. Those who want to get rich, right? In other words, um, those who, who, who prioritize wealth for wealth's sake, right? People who put themselves ahead of everything else. That's what he's talking about. Paul is saying, okay, there are specific traps and there are specific temptations um, for, for those people who make rich the focus, Right? This is not about rich people. The Apostle Paul says, no, this is about everyone for whose specific focus in life is rich. Right? Which means that if I were to ask you, if, we, if someone were to ask any of us, okay, do we know what these traps are? The answer to that question would be no. Because they're traps. Right? See, again, don't, don't miss what he's saying here. Right? Don't miss what he's saying. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. You know what plunge is? Plunge is you're driving along and all of a sudden the, the road disappears and you end up in a sinkhole. Right? That, that's what plunge is. Right? Everyone wants to be you, everyone wants to be him, everyone wants to be here, everything looks like life is great and all of a sudden you wake up the next morning and you find out that, oh no, their life has blown up in front of you. They have, they have plunged into destruction. That's what, that's what plunge is. Again, don't miss what he's saying here. Unbridled, right? this is what this is all about. Unbridled discontentment always leads to destruction. Right? That, that's what he's telling us. It will plunge us into credit card debt. It will plunge you into signing a lease that you have no business signing. 
It'll plunge you into no savings. It will plunge you into no giving. Unbridled discontentment, it can numb your heart to God. It can take over your mind and your body. It can actually cause you and me to oppress and to hurt other people. And in the end, it will drive our souls into ruin. And one day we wake up and we think to ourselves, okay, how in the world did I get here? Well, it's because I fell into, you fell into one of these traps. And then the Apostle Paul, he kind of repeats himself, right? So he's saying the same thing to us over and over again, right? So he says this, he says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now, again, we hear this and we think to ourselves, okay, nobody loves money. That's ridiculous. Well, this is the problem. This is one of those things you never see in the mirror, right? You don't see jealousy in the mirror. You don't see greed in the mirror. You never see love of money in the mirror, right? So how do you know? Right? How do you know? Because I've never had anyone say to me, okay, hey, Joe, I finally figured out what my problem is. I just love money. Nobody's ever said that to me. Right, and the Apostle Paul says there are some people who love money. They just don't know. So how do you know? Well, let me ask you a question. What are you willing to do for it? Right, I mean, you're willing to do extreme things for who or what you love, aren't you? I remember when you fell in love and you were willing to drive hours, spend hours just trying to get to spend a few minutes with her. Remember when you first fell in love and you were willing to sneak out just to spend a few minutes with him even though you might get in trouble with your parents? People will do crazy things. People will go to extremes when they love something. So what are you willing to do for money? And who are you willing to hurt for it? Right. In other words, is there somebody um, at home who, who feels like they're being prioritized behind your stuff? See, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps you stepped in to one of those traps, right? You didn't see it. You didn't know it was there. And see, listen, hear me on this, okay? Don't miss this. If this is you, I'm not saying you're bad. I'm not saying you're not smart. I'm not saying that you don't love your family. I'm not saying any of those things. I'm saying please. That's all I'm saying. I'm saying please. Please recognize the trap. And do not keep going in the direction that you are going. Otherwise, you will plunge yourself and the people you love the most into ruin and destruction. He continues and he says this. He says, some people... Right, Some people who are eager for money, he says, they have wandered from the faith and they have pierced themselves with many griefs. Right? In other words, if we're not careful in our desire to accumulate, because right? you've got to have the boat, got to have the cottage, got to have the lake house, got to have the beach, got to have the new car, got to, got to, got to. Right? All that stuff is what he's saying. Right? All that. If we're not careful, all of that busyness, all of that eagerness right? for money, it can change the way that we view God, you and I, the way that we view God. It can cause us to wander from the faith. It can even cause us to, to pierce ourselves, right? To experience that we will experience the consequences of our own actions. That's what he's saying. At the soul level. Now here's what I want you to notice. Four verses, six statements. Right? That, all that was just four verses, six statements. Not a single command in any of them. 
Right? There's no commands in any of that text. Do you look at that text? There's not a single command. Just six statements about reality and the nature of wealth, the nature of life, the nature of money, and the nature of stuff. And so the question is this, listen, do we believe the scripture or not? Will we read the scripture the way that Jesus read the scripture as an act of trust in God or not? And then see, this is the, the beauty of this scripture um, because the Apostle Paul now goes on um, and, and he doesn't say to Timothy, okay, now just don't do those things, right? Because he knows that never works, right? He, he, a not goal never works in life. I'm going to grow up, I, I'm, I'm just not going to be like my dad, never works. I, I wanna, when I grow up, I'm just not going to be like my mom, that never works, right? Having a not goal never works in life because you actually have to decide what you are going to do or who you are going to be. Right, and so the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, this is what I want you to do. Right, and he says this, but you, man of God, and he's, remember, he's speaking to a man, so same thing for you women. But you, women of God, right, flee from all of this. Like literally run in the exact opposite direction. That's what he's saying. And pursue, in other words, this is what you are to run after. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. And then notice what he says next. Verse 12, and fight the good fight of faith. Now we hear this statement quoted all the time, but notice the context. Right? This is all about the fight against money and stuff and discontentment and the never-ending quest for more. See, here's what the Apostle Paul is telling us in this whole section of Scripture. Listen, he's saying that contentment is actually found by redirecting our pursuits. Now, again, here's what's so interesting about this, and this might be brand new for some of you. But the Apostle Paul, before he became a follower of Jesus, the Apostle Paul was extremely, extremely wealthy, and he was extremely, extremely successful. The Apostle Paul was a very, very ambitious individual. And now that he is a follower of Jesus, he has absolutely nothing, right? So he's been on both sides of this. And so what he's about to tell us, this is why I tell you this, because what he's about to tell us has nothing to do with how much money you have, has nothing to do with how successful you are in life, how ambitious you are in life, how much of you've accumulated, how much, how much wealth you personally possess. He's not saying anything against anyone who's accomplished a lot or who has a lot. And again, here's why I say that, because he addresses rich people. Right? And he says this, he says, command those, right, command those who are rich in this present world. And, and see, the truth is, for years, I, I would kind of run by this verse, even as an adult, because I always thought he was talking about somebody else. But, but let me put it this way. For those of you who are like me, and you will probably get a box in the mail from Amazon this week, and you will look at this box, it will have your name on it, and if you're honest, you'll have no idea what's inside of it until you open it. Right, if you've ever, that's who he's talking to. Right, so if that's you, if you've ever, that's us, that's me. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be, and we think he's going to say not to be so rich. That's not what he says. Not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Right, in other words, what he's saying, this is what this means. Listen, don't put your wealth out front. Right, don't make that thing the primary pursuit. How do you not make something first? You put something else in front of it. Right, that's what he's saying. Or, right, but instead, right, but he says, he goes on. But instead, put their hope in God, right, continue, next screen. 
but put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Right? And the Apostle Paul says, yeah, the reason God has given you all of this in the first place, it's actually for your enjoyment. Right? That's why he, he's given it to you. Paul's saying, listen, I don't care that you have stuff. He's saying, listen, I just don't want your stuff to have you. I, I don't want you to miss out. I don't want you to be so dissatisfied with what you have that, that you can't enjoy what you actually do have. I don't want you to be so driven by what's next that you can't actually pause and enjoy what's God, what God has put in your hands right now. So he continues, he says this, he says, Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and to be willing to share. And in this way, right, in this way, they will lay up treasure. You will lay up treasure for yourselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that you may take hold of the life that is truly life. At the heart of the practice of simplicity is doing the hard work of wrestling discontentment to the ground. And if you do, right, if you, um, if you will refocus your awareness, this is what Paul's saying, if you'll refocus your awareness, um, you, if you will allow yourself to be bothered by something that really does in fact need your undivided attention, not just where you live or what you drive or what you wear or any of those things. The Apostle Paul says at the end of that, right, in this life, not in eternity someday, not one day someday, no, in this life, the Apostle Paul is saying, listen, you will take hold of life that is truly life. Right? You will take hold of life that is worth living. You will actually take hold of life that leaves life in its wake. Right? Because you know this, right? You know this. You've heard me say this so many times before. Because the value of a life, the value of your life, the value of any life, the value of my life, the value of a life, it's always, always, always measured by how much of it is given away. Right? Because the scripture is true. Godliness with contentment, it is great gain, right, for you, for you, for you, and for all those who come along after you. Let me pray for you today. Heavenly Father, I know, I know how this feels to hear these words for, for many of us, Father, because I know uh, what it was like in my own life before you got a hold of my heart and you, you, changed, uh, you changed the way I saw so many things. Because, Father, I had all the classic signs as a young adult. I had all the classic signs of, of discontentment. I had a bunch of stuff. It was really great. And I had a pile of credit card debt to go along with it. And it didn't matter how much I bought or how much I added to my collection. Um, none of it lasted. None of it satisfied. None of it, uh, none of it quenched that, that thirst that I was trying to quench. And so, Father, my prayer for all of us today is twofold. Father, for those of us um, who can hear these words and we can hear them with a sense of gratefulness and gratitude because of what you've taught us. Father, my, my prayer for, 
that group of us is that we would not be content um, to have learned the lesson. Holy Spirit, that we would still be willing to pray and to ask you, um, what should we be discontent about in our world? What do you actually want us to focus our awareness on that's bigger than just ourselves? That we would leave something beyond just our stuff? And that, Father, you would be the one who directs that in us? And, Father, for the other group of us who hear this and we are convicted by it and we argue with it and we don't even want to believe or acknowledge it's true, Father, I just pray, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would save us from a world of hurt, from traps that we don't see, that we can't see, from temptation maybe that that we think is out there for other people, but we just don't think, you know, we'll ever fall into. Father, I pray that for that group of us, I pray that you will in these moments speak to us. Show us what it is that you would have us do with what it is that you're saying to us. And Father, most of all, I ask that you would give us the courage that we need to believe that your word is true, to believe that you actually want what's best for us because, Father, you love us and you gave yourself for us and you do not want anything from us. You simply want us to experience life that is truly life. And so we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.